This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This is Honora. He was as popular as anybody. He fights, he scores big goals, he's, he has a larger-than-life personality. You want to party with him, he's a, he's a heck of a partier as well. Like I said, when he makes his mind up and he wants to do something, he's great at it. Darren McCarty, six foot one and 219 pounds. Not only an incredibly gifted National Hockey League player who won four Stanley Cups with the Detroit Red Wings, but also one of the most feared enforcers on the ice. You will never, ever find a sport that has a harder role than being a hockey enforcer. And they deserve all the respect in the world. I come from an alcoholic family, and it's the hardest, darkest, toughest, grossest, biggest fight I've ever been in. And it's not like I've won the fight. McCarty literally had to fight his way into the NHL, but perhaps his biggest fight has been battling his demons off the ice. I'm Sylvester Stallone, and this is The Comeback. You know, just like any kid in in Canada, the joke is you learn to skate before you learn to walk. Probably since I was like eight or nine years old, the guys that worked at the rink would let me in in the morning and skate before school. And whenever there was open ice, I'd always be out there on it. I was the type of kid that I was told so many more times of why I wouldn't make it instead of why I would. But that's my motivation. If anybody knows me, you tell me I can't do something, I'm just going to do it to shove it up your ass. There's this Can-Am hockey school that I went to every year for 10 years, from the time I was like seven till I was like 17. And there's a coach there named Brian Drum. Brian Drum was the person that gave me the secret to my success. And it's very simply said, to make it to the NHL, you gotta do one thing 99.9% better than everybody else. For you, it's gonna play physical, fighting, hitting, stuff like that. I was all for it. At the young age of 16, McCarty was elevated to play junior B against 21-year-olds who were stronger and more experienced. You let everybody know you establish yourself, that you're not going to get pushed around, that you're going to stand up for your teammates. Doing this this way, it buys you space in hockey because guys, you know, there's an intimidation factor and there's something that no one wants to go near a guy that you know you're going to get hit by every time. I was drafted from junior B to junior A. So my last year as a 19-year-old, 
scored 55 goals, finished 127 points, 181 penalty minutes. I won player of the year in the OHL, finished second in the whole Canadian Hockey League. That enabled me to get drafted by the Detroit Red Wings, my hometown team, in the second round of the 92 draft, 46 overall. I always wanted to be a Detroit Red Wing when they said right winger from Belleville Bulls and I was like, I'm the only one on my team that, that could get drafted. It was honestly like the jolt of electricity from your toes out through your head. It was like that jolt of dream come true and I remember putting that jersey on. It was surreal. You're sitting in the locker room going, that's Steve Eisenman and that's Bob Prober and that's Sergei Fedorov and that's Nick Lidstrom. And you get to know these guys not just by their hockey cards or by their video games, but as people. At center number 33, Chris Draper. Hi, my name's Chris Draper. When you're Darren McCarty's friend, he's going to look out for you. When you're his teammate, he's going to look out for you. That's just the type of person and teammate that Darren McCarty is. We were incredible friends. We were, you know, inseparable, uh, you know, on, on the road. We were roommates. You know, Darren McCarty was, you know, best man at my wedding. We're playing in the National Hockey League where Detroit Red Wings, we'd go out, you know, we'd have fun. And then, you know, it'd be, you know, where the, the, the bar would close and be time to go home. We'd tell Mac and he's like, yeah, 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 you know, no problem. And then, you know, if he didn't leave with us, he was in it for the long haul. There were times, you know, I got I got to be honest with you. I'm I'm looking at him and, and like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, like we we got in arguments. As far as my relationship with alcohol, or al I come from an alcoholic family, and my grandmother, she would always, since I was like 17, 18, honey, you got that, you got the disease, you gotta, you gotta be careful, you gotta be careful, and you know what I'm saying? Like, it was something that, I mean, I, I was all or nothing, right? You know what I'm saying? So I was the same way off the ice as I was on the ice. I didn't have any balance, I didn't have any gears. I'm Dr. Marvin Seppler, the Chief Medical Officer of the Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation. I had training in psychiatry as well as a fellowship in addiction. There's research that was done at Scripps in San Diego. And what they found was that if they took these boys when they were in their early teens, after they'd exposed themselves to alcohol, and they then brought them into the lab and gave them a distinct amount of alcohol and then asked them to do some fairly straightforward motor exercises, just like writing and drawing. They could predict who was going to become alcoholic extremely accurately. It was the guys who had very little response to the alcohol. Their physical motor abilities didn't change. Those are the ones that are most likely to become alcoholic. The one night I remember, we're at a bar. This guy wanted to do tequila with Mac. They lined up 10 shots each, whatever it might be, and it was going to be the guy was going to do one, Mac was going to do one. So the first, you know, two or three shots, the guy did one, Mac did one. And then next thing you know, Mac goes, he looks and say there's five or six shots, and it was grab it, boom, grab it, boom, grab it. And I just remember, like, looking at this, I was like, that's not normal. If they're drinking and carrying on way past their friends, if they're using a lot more,
more than their friends and more frequently than their friends. If that starts to happen, there is evidence of a problem. Before we get to Darren's Achilles heel, let's talk about fighting in hockey and why Darren's fighting ability was so important to the success of the Red Wings. The hockey season is officially on. A nice, gentle game full of battered shins, cracked skulls, broken arms, tangled legs, and nosedives. Fighting hockey's been around since the very beginning. You know, back in the day, back in the 30s and 40s, to get the crowds pumped up, they used to have a, a promoter, the same guys who promote fights at Madison Square Garden in New York City. They would uh, hire a guy to drive around the arena in, in an ambulance with the, the lights blaring, saying, you know, Detroit's in town or Boston's in town, playing the Rangers, you know, there's going to be a ball. And, Come see it. You know, it's one of the most exciting things that happens in sports. You know, no one goes up to get a hot dog or go to the bathroom when there's going to be a fight. And the two goalies go at it, head to head, and Joseph with three great rights to Shovel Day. And we've got some terrific fights going on. It's riveting. You don't know what it's going to happen. It's, you know, it's the only sport where fighting is legal. That's best-selling author Ross Bernstein, who's written many books, one of which is dedicated to fighting in hockey called The Code, The Unwritten Rules of Fighting and Retaliation in the NHL. After the break, we'll hear more from Ross on how fights can start. And it's not as straightforward as you might think. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Fights don't happen randomly. There's a backstory. And uh, there's always some retaliation. There's something that happens and it leads and it escalates. There's an honor code in hockey that says if you disrespect the player, if you take liberties with a smaller player, if you hit a man from behind, if you do something cheap or dirty, then this code says you must be held accountable. In 95, we ended up going to the Stanley Cup Finals and we got swept by New Jersey Devils. Then we go into 96, the Detroit Red Wings had arguably one of the greatest regular seasons of all time. We ended up setting the NHL record for most wins in a regular season. And, you know, everybody was saying that this is the year for the Detroit Red Wings. It was the first period in game six of the Western Conference Finals. Chris Draper was by the wings bench when Avalanche forward Claude Lemieux pummeled them into the boards from behind. The hit left Chris Draper's face bloody and unrecognizable. He got leveled by Claude Lemieux, and he is down on the ice. It was a dirty hit, you know, a violent hit from behind. You know, I broke my nose, my cheekbone, my jaw, and my orbital bone. Wow, that's not only the centerman, that's my best friend. 
Claude Lemieux himself didn't apologize, said you wouldn't have heard of Chris Draper, he's not sorry, part of the game, this, that, this. The hit ignited one of the fiercest rivalries in sports history. To add insult to injury, the Wings lost, putting an end to their Stanley Cup hopes for yet another year. That summer, McCarty vowed two things. The first was to get sober. He checked himself into the Maple Grove Center for Chemical Dependency. The second vow he made was to get revenge on the avalanche, and specifically, Claude Lemieux. Certainly you being from Detroit know what the expectations are here in Detroit to win a Stanley Cup. They haven't won the cup since 1955, and around here they're calling it the 40-year itch. There was a lot of questions about the Detroit Red Wings. You know, are, are they tough enough? Uh, do they have enough character? And in all honesty, when the games really meant everything, you know, could we find ways to win the big game? And up until that point, we had it. And what we always talked about is we needed, you know, team toughness. And Darren McCarty wanted to be that physical element. He wanted to be that physical presence. It wasn't my love of doing it. It was my fear of any of my teammates having to do it before I went first. And you knew that basically to get to the Stanley Cup, we were going to have to go through Colorado. They had to go through the avalanche, and it was on McCarty's shoulders to settle the score with Lemieux and change Red Wings history forever. It was an electric night at Joe Louis Arena. There was a lot of tension, you could feel it. The starting lineup for your Detroit Red Wings. And, you know, we were down in that game. And then, you know, next thing you know, all hell broke loose. And that's when McCarty, who wanted to seek revenge for his friend and teammate on that grind line, he pummeled Lemieux into a bloody mess. Nobody did, and now Darren McCarty gets his shots in at Claude Lemieux. You never know when to expect it, Darren McCarty said before. How about this? Lemieux was hammered by Darren McCarty, and he is being helped into the locker room. Colorado. The Red Wings later talked about it. I mean, they were inspired by that brawl. That's what fighting is. It's a momentum swing. The psychological advantage that that gave us from that March 26th game propelled us to go on to win our first Stanley Cup. Three seconds left into the zone. The Detroit Red Wings on the Stanley Cup. Can you believe this goal by Darren McCarty? The big story, what else? The Red Wings. The team that brought the Stanley Cup home to Detroit threw a party today, and about a million friends came by. Parade, a million and a half people. I got a photo from a helicopter over Detroit River back through Hart Plaza. The following season, the Red Wings would repeat with back-to-back -back championships. McCarty was earning over $2 million a year. And unbelievably, the team picked up a third Stanley Cup in 2002. Perhaps most importantly, McCarty was still sober. But when the 2004 season was cancelled due to salary negotiations falling apart between the players and the franchise owners, Darren became a bit of a loose cannon. With no hockey to play, no structure, and no teammates helping Darren keep on the straight and narrow, 
he decided to pursue something that up until that point had just been a hobby. He was the lead singer of a rock band called Grinder, and he decided to take Grinder on the road. Darren McCarty has always been a music fan and a fighter. Since 1997, he's been the front man for a rock band appropriately titled Grinder. How would you classify your musical style? I'd say it's uh, rock and roll with a little punk flavor to it. I'd like to thank you all right now for coming out. And uh, we say we keep on rocking. Played in Vegas, played in at the Roxy in LA, played all over, had a riot. You know, living that sort of rock star life. He has a larger than life personality. You know, we would just win the Stanley Cup. He scored, you know, the game winning goal in game four, like Max walking on water. And then all of a sudden, you know, the band Grinder starts up and, and it's not like Mac was just going to go and, and perform and then go home and get some sleep and get up in the morning and go work out. After 10 years of sobriety, one fateful morning in Hawaii, Darren woke up and started drinking again. Uh, what we look at is the neurobiology of this disease when we start talking about why it's so difficult to stop. The part of the brain most involved is called the reward center, where survival-based activities like sexual behaviors for survival of the species or eating food, drinking fluids, uh, human interaction, love, all of them are rewarding. And yet the amount of dopamine released in that reward center by those activities pales by comparison to that released by the intoxicants that we become addicted to. In those of us that are genetically predisposed to addiction, when we use those substances, that reprioritizes what's going on in that reward center, and it causes the highest release of dopamine, and that becomes the most important thing in life, more important, in fact, than life itself. With my gambling, I've lost probably a million and a half, two million dollars. I lost 250 grand in one shoe in Vegas. I was calling him out on what he was doing. Darren didn't want to hear it anymore. Mac didn't want to hear it anymore. We came from being best friends to driving down to the rink together, to rooming together, to talking all the time. And I didn't even, I didn't see him. I didn't hear from him. It hurt. I was pissed off. I was like, you don't do that to friends. You don't treat friends like that. I mean, I'm a freaking human ATM. I mean, I think I put my sister through seven colleges. I was everything to everybody. But when you're, when you're Darren McCartney, you're everything to everybody else, and you don't know who you are to yourself, then you get fed your ego where you think you are DMAC 24-7. So the person that helped me set up the McCartney Cancer Foundation that I got into business with, I lost six and a half million dollars. It, and it's not like, why didn't you tell me? Everybody did tell me. I didn't listen. You're asking about money and celebrity and how it can fuel a fire. Sometimes the type of friends that show up under those circumstances that support the continued behavior without expressing concern because, you know, they're, they're getting something out of it, whether it's money or their own fame or whatever. They kind of take advantage of the situation. I'm like a true friend or a true family member who, who would recognize the problem. You know, when we were in season, I could take care of Darren, I could be with Mac. But, you know, all of a sudden you, you try to get a hold of him or whatever it might be and you don't hear from him. It was certainly, uh, you know, concerning for, for myself. McCarty came crashing back to earth where a mountain of problems greeted him. No longer a Red Wing, 
McCarthy owed millions of dollars to banks, friends, credit card companies, utilities, law firms, and hundreds of thousands of dollars to casinos. Darren was bankrupt. This is December of 07, maybe late November, and, and who do I call first? I call my best buddy and centerman of the grind line, Chris Draper, who's still playing for the Wings. I knew the call was going to come. I didn't know when it was going to come. You know, I was kind of sad and I was kind of mad. And but he goes, you know, dude, I'm, 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 I'm not doing real good. And then he, you know, he looked at me, and he said, he, I still think I have some hockey left in me. I looked at him, and I could kind of see there was, you know, there was fire that kind of put a smile on my face. And and he just, you know, he kind of said, if if there's anyone, you know, that can, you know, get me in shape, hold me accountable, it's it's going to be you. And I need you. I want this. And I'm asking for your help. I remember looking at Mac, and I told him, I said, I said, Mac, like, if you're all in and you want to do this, I'm certainly going to help you. But I can't go out of my way to set up personal training, meet trainers, skills coaches, you name it, set all this stuff up. And then all of a sudden, it's like, if if you miss, it's going to piss me off. Darren McCarthy worked his way up from the minor leagues back to a position on the Red Wings. He even went on to win a fourth Stanley Cup. However, this is not Darren McCarthy's comeback story. It should have been. But following his success, he retired and felt empty. He found himself back at the bottom of a barrel, back in the grips of his crippling addiction problems. And this time, they were life-threatening. You're supposed to make the comeback when you're fourth and then ride into the sunset and be this great person and whatever else. It doesn't work that way. You get into the addiction and the alcohol and then you spend you know, all your days at the bar and everything's centered around that because when shit got tough, go hide in a bottle. I can't explain it, but it's it was sort of the, that emptiness. We ran into each other you know, over the years. We had nothing in common. There was, there was zero conversation. You know, you're thinking like, man, like, and, and I got to be honest with you, he didn't look very good at all. I didn't get a hangover from September 2009 to November 2015 because I was always drunk. We, we played in a couple of alumni games, and I just remember watching him try to skate and, and play. Like, honestly, like he looked like he was 60 to 65 years old. You know, as soon as you start talking to him, he starts sweating a little bit. And, and like I said, he looked awful. It, it, it's, it scared me. And, you know, I just, I remember I looked at Mac and I was like, basically told him, I'm like, what are you doing to yourself? You know, and he's just, you know, kind of laughed it off. It was hard. It was uncomfortable. Uh, I felt, you know, I was sad. And I'm just watching this guy and he's going down a, a dark, dark path that, you know, to me, wasn't, wasn't going to end well. What's up, babe? I'm on the thing. What's up? <laughs> That's the lovely Cheryl we've been talking about. Yeah, they want to, they're going to talk to you at some point, Cheryl. So my name is Cheryl McCarty. I'm a bachelor's prepared nurse and working on my doctorate. I um, have been with Darren since 2009. So he was just entering retirement. So he was still this really big buff guy. And um, I think he's super handsome with his, his nose is is all crooked and he's got scars all over his face so when i met him 
she was just entering that phase of retirement, like a lot of, you know, uh, professional athletes do. They go through that transition of uh, in retirement where they just literally, they've lost all the, I don't want to say purpose, but purpose in their life. The people that were just life when I came around, they were, there was like this shady couple. And I always wondered why they were always around him. They acted like he was their brother. And I found out later that they were like bringing him cocaine. And the girl, the, the woman, the wife would always talk about, you know, she's going to pay his bills. And so he'd give her his debit card and she would be paying all her bills. And Darren just didn't care. He just didn't, you know, he didn't have a clue and he didn't care at that point because he was just, he just wanted to stay drunk. When I met Cheryl, I didn't have a passport, a green card, a driver's license. I mean, there was, everything was like, it was just shambles. I just quit on life. He had good people around him as well but they were very few and far between, but mainly they were like these Coke dealers and his, you know, 3 a.m. girlfriends. So with Darren, he's never done anything halfway. So Darren just doesn't become an alcoholic or just drink a little bit, become an alcoholic. Darren becomes a raging alcoholic that drinks until he's blackout drunk and then he would do cocaine so he could sober up so he could drink more. I got admitted into the hospital at 245 over 163 heart rate. I was within a month of not being alive. For me, it was a woman who showed love to me that I deserved to love myself, if that makes sense, to be able to fight. And it wasn't fighting for her, it was fighting for me because she believed in me when everybody else in my life had quit. One of the ways people often get sober is falling in love. If somebody else cares for them and somehow touches them, at a really deep level, in spite of how much they really dislike themselves in the middle of addiction, and, and yet somehow touched by another human being. And it can result in the motivation to get sober. Darren has the heart of a lion. If you ever talk to anyone that knows Darren, he is the sweetest, greatest man you'll ever know. He would do anything for anyone. And he, I, I mean, his heart is just huge. He doesn't want anyone to be sad. He doesn't want it to hurt anyone. So um, that's what finally, his persistence and then his heart definitely won me over. I, I, I don't have an addictive personality. So I, I, and I've always told Mac that I don't understand what, what you're going through. But I always told him, I said, you know, if you surround yourself with good people, that we're always going to be there, you know, for you. Well, since November 11, 2015, I haven't had a single drop of alcohol. But the fact is, is that it was a process to know that it wouldn't happen overnight. It's a process of looking in the mirror. You know, Darren McCarty is always going to be uh, one of my best friends and one of my greatest teammates. Darren definitely loves drapes so much, and they're like brothers. And Darren would do anything for him, and I'm sure Chris would do anything for Darren. Obviously, you know, find it. You know Cheryl, and and I mean that's that's amazing. I'm I'm so happy that you know she's helped you know guide him and been a you know major influence on on Darren McCarty being Darren McCarty. I live by the principles of Alcoholic Anonymous, except here's the difference. I have a garden. I have a garden in my program because that was the missing link for me is to understand how cannabis and my endocannabinoid system and especially CBD and CBN, how they could um, help me out. 
Marijuana has definitely saved his life. It's the medication that he needed. He doesn't even have a desire to drink. He, um, he's completely good. Darren McCarty is a fighter. He fought his way into the NHL and out of the depths of addiction. When he talks about all of his fights, all of his battles, his biggest is with alcohol. It's the hardest, darkest, toughest, grossest, biggest fight I've ever been in, right? And it's, and it's not like I've won the fight. I'll never win the fight. He's always a guy that's up for a fight, and he's said it, you know, more. He's in, the, you know, the fight of his life right now, and, and he's just got to keep doing what he's doing. I'm grateful to be here, but I'm also angry that it's taken this long because I figure I've probably lost between 2009 and 2015, not only memories of different things, but you know, the biggest thing is, if I'm gonna be honest, it's the time that I've lost with my own kids. You know, when we talk about cancer remission, we usually talk about five years. Now. The same could be said for alcohol and drug addiction. People after five years often find themselves extremely successful in their lives and doing remarkably well. So it's really worthy of celebration. Through the collaborations with you guys and, and getting it out there, it's just to spread the message to people that don't give up. You don't ever give up. You know, you go down to Little Caesars Arena, you see Mac, he's on the big screen, he's talking hockey. You see he's got that passion, he's got passion for you know, the game of hockey. He's probably one of the most proudest Detroit Red Wings ever. You can see he's got that, he's got that passion, he's got that light in his eyes, that fire in his eyes for life. You know, it's, it's great to have my friend back. If you or someone you know is currently struggling with addiction to alcohol or other substances, please visit our show notes on the platform you're listening to for professional help. The Comeback is brought to you by Imperative Entertainment and is created, written, and edited by Giles Andrew and Elliot Watson of Honor Productions. Executive producers are Sylvester Stallone and Braden Aftergood of Balboa Productions, Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment, and Trevor Groth of 30 West. The Comeback is produced by Honora Productions and Balboa Productions in association with 30 West. Original music for the series composed by Dan Powell. Sound design and sound mixing also by Dan Powell. Poster design and graphics by Dana Kim and Ricardo Imperial. Additional writing by Hugh McFinity. Associate producing by Nick Antonucci. Special thanks to Darren McCarty, Ross Bernstein, Chris Draper, Cheryl McCarty, and Dr. Marvin Sappala of the Betty Ford Clinic. Special thanks to Ryan Abushi, Dawn Bishwal, Alex Witherill, and Charles Denton. Key art photography of Sylvester Stallone by Michael Putland. Please subscribe, download, and share, and follow us on social media for extra content and updates.
the Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.